Well, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3. And we're looking at the grace of Easter. And so, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago was New Year's, right? And here we are at Easter week. And time has gone by so quickly, we're already entering into the second quarter of this new year. And before you uh, know it, we'll be at Easter, we'll be at Christmas. And it'll be an amazing time, and it'll be a fast year. But we've arrived at Easter week, and for many, Easter is a welcome of the coming spring season. We see the sun and the blue skies. We see new life coming from the ground. For others, Easter is simply a cultural holiday that is centered around egg hunts around family gatherings, around festive meals, and maybe even, maybe even church attendance. But for Christians, it is Holy Week, the time when Christians all over the world focus on what is the most significant event in all of human history. It's hard to choose which is more significant, the advent of Christ at Christmas or the death and resurrection of Christ at Easter. Two sides of the same coin, but this incredibly significant moment in human history when we recognize His death on the cross to pay the penalty for us in His resurrection to provide for us victory and life with Him eternal. So I felt compelled this week to focus on why the season of Easter came in the first place. I kind of thought I was going to do something along the lines of the triumphal entry or some of the teaching that came after the triumphal entry. And the further I got into that, the further away I drifted in that. And... um, I think in a very, in a very uh, blessed way, our worship is pretty fitting for what I'll talk about today. Even though it wasn't originally thought that I would be preaching this, and I don't theme music to what I'm preaching, I try to make it as biblical based upon things I've already told you before. But anyway, I felt compelled to focus on why the season of this Easter was necessary, and this was kind of a late adjustment in addition, not the message that I was planning on doing, and finished it very, very late. So, this passage that we're looking at today in Romans chapter 3 would be considered very controversial in today's feel good culture where man is celebrated and his accomplishments are glorified and his ever his future is ever evolving into greater good this passage puts that kind of philosophy squarely in its place as nothing but rubbish as we recognize what God's Word says about us prior to our coming to know the grace of Christ through our faith and what it is He's done. The truth of Scripture paints a very different picture about man and it, it articulates the depth of man's need and that was why I felt it was important to look at this as we think about why Easter was even necessary. So although we are created in the image of God, the fall of man has plunged man into the depth of sin that I don't think we can fully appreciate until the consummation of our salvation. So my purpose today, let me say this on the front, my purpose today is not to beat anyone up, it's not to make anyone feel bad, it's not intended to deflate one's self-esteem. My purpose is to glorify and celebrate the grace of God by His meeting the very deepest need of man. 
So it's usually somewhat ill-advised to jump into the middle of a chapter in the first third of a book and pluck out a section of Scripture and focus on that. We haven't looked at the preceding sections. We haven't developed them or explained them. We haven't recognized or addressed the immediate context of what is being addressed. But these verses, I believe, are very self-explanatory and will deepen our understanding of the grace of God and of our need for the grace of God. These verses tell the dark and dirty truth about all of unredeemed mankind... And it exposes who we are before Christ and what our natural tendencies are even after our conversion. So I believe these verses explain to us why there was a need for Easter. Let's read Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 18. (laughs) There's a lot of churches that won't even read this passage, let alone uh, talk about it because... It doesn't feel good. And so uh, here's what God's Word says to us today. As it is written, referencing Old Testament passages, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow. (laughs) Not what many people want to hear on an occasional Attendance at church, why I'm not preaching this next Sunday. (laughs) But a couple of things to note as we look at this. First of all, it is important to recognize that Paul is quoting exclusively from the Old Testament, predominantly from the book of Psalms, one exception, in verse 15, which comes from Isaiah. These are not entire quotes of verses. It's where Paul has pulled together bits and pieces of different psalms to articulate the depth of man's sinfulness, exposing his need for God. Secondly, these are not Roman cultural issues. They're not Jewish people issues. They're not even ancient civilization issues. These are universal, time-tested, all people ever in the world issues of which you and I would be included. Thirdly, these describe the general characteristics characteristics of unredeemed man, and most will not possess these characteristics in the most extreme form, but they are still possessed by all of unredeemed mankind. So a couple of things to preface that, again, not getting into the context or the specific culture to which Paul is addressing. So we're going to look at these nine verses in three sections. The first section we're going to look at is the character of the unredeemed. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. And number one is man is sinful. We speak about the total depravity of man. We talk about zero worthwhile virtue in man. Man is thoroughly sinful, thoroughly sinful 
selfish, absolutely, totally separated from God. Man is sinful. There is none righteous, not even one. Righteousness is a major theme all throughout the book that Paul is writing to the church in Rome. He uses the term over 30 times in his writing, and he uses synonymous terms like justified a number of other times. And so righteousness is a very major theme, and it relates to right standing before God. Right standing before God requires, listen to this, right standing before God requires sinless perfection. Right standing before God, that sinless perfection, is the only standard of God's righteousness. Now, you and I think about righteousness and we evaluate external behavior and we might even say, well, that's a righteous man or that's a righteous woman or that is a godly man. And we would be celebrating, in a sense, those little elements within an individual's life that in some way reflect the righteousness of God. But make make no mistake about it, there is none righteous, no, not even one. People are able to do things that are morally right, and even the most evil person may occasionally do something that could be considered as good, but Paul is not speaking of a specific act, or even in general patterns of behavior. But Paul is talking about man's inner character. There is none righteous, not even one. No one has ever lived whose innermost being could be considered righteous with the exception of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the man who was God, the God who was man, And this inner unrighteousness is the basic reason for man's utter sinfulness and is the reason for unredeemed man's separation from God. Jesus made it very clear. He said this in Matthew 5, 48, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, words, anyone who is not perfect like God is not acceptable to God. Think about that. If one does not possess the sinless perfection, the absolute righteousness of God, then God does not accept him. So the question is, who is perfect? No one. Who can be perfect? No one. And you see, that is the grace that is found in Easter. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And that word might in the Greek doesn't mean hopefully or maybe or if God looks upon us kindly. What it indicates is that through our faith in Christ, we have become the very righteousness of God in Christ and therefore we are now acceptable to God because God has given to us through our faith in Christ the very righteousness of Christ which makes us perfect in our spirit spiritual position like Christ and therefore acceptable to God. What an amazing act of grace God has done for us that is necessitated by the reality that there is none righteous, not even one. Secondly, man is spiritually ignorant. 
The beginning part of verse 11, there is no one who understands. I would say that in our culture today, the word ignorant is not very popular. Oh, no, 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 don't say that. You might hurt someone's feelings. You might make them feel bad about themselves. You might communicate that they're not as smart as they think they are. Well, (laughs) there is no one who understands. In our unredeemed position, we are spiritually ignorant. Think about this. Even if mankind somehow had the ability to achieve outside of Christ God's perfect righteousness, they would not know what it is and they would not know how to go about attaining it. They have no clue. Even if we had the ability to achieve that sinless perfection, we wouldn't know where to look. We wouldn't know actually what it is we're supposed to do in order to accomplish this sinless perfection. Man has no innate ability to fully comprehend God's truth or His standard of righteousness. I can say this a little bit more rudely. We are spiritually idiots. We have no clue. We have no concept. We don't even know where to look to find the sinless perfection that describes God in the fullness of who He is. Paul emphasized this reality when he said this in 1 Corinthians 2. A natural man, an unredeemed man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You might have a spiritual conversation with someone who is not saved, who doesn't have any spiritual understanding, and they will look at you with this glaze over their eyes and this look of, uh, what are you talking about on their face? And it's totally over their heads because they cannot understand it. It's foolishness to them because in their natural spirit, They cannot understand it. And that's where the gift of faith given to us enables us to understand enough to say yes to Christ. So without redemption in a new spiritual condition, man has no ability to understand the things of God. So apart from biblical revelation, man has no hope of understanding God who has made himself known through creation. Left to his own understand, understanding, man simply creates idols and ideologies that are, that are inconsistent with the truth of who God is. The book of Proverbs says this, Proverbs 13, 14, 12, there is a way which seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. You know why that's true? Because apart from biblical revelation, we'll just pursue anything that seems right to us, but it's never going to lead us to the truth of who God is. Because all of these pursuits of man, spiritually and religiously, apart from biblical revelation, are not rooted in the truth of who God is, the provision of Christ on the cross, and the end of that religious or spiritual pursuit is going to be a dead end with no hope of really finding the truth of who God is. This is true because man is spiritually ignorant and cannot understand the person of God or the ways of God 
in their unredeemed condition. Through the grace of Easter, we can understand who God is because Jesus said this in John 14, 9, He who has seen the Father has seen Me. So if an unredeemed man wants to begin to see what God is like, and what the very righteousness of God looks like, they begin to look at no other place than the person of Jesus, the life of Jesus, as revealed through biblical revelation, written for us in the gospel narratives carried out through the book of Acts and continued through the rest of the New Testament revelation. Number three, man is rebellious. Not only is man sinful and spiritually ignorant, man is rebellious. There is none who seeks for God. Now this truth is very likely objected to by many through the varied religious and spiritual pursuits throughout all of time. There are countless numbers of religions in the world with millions of zealous followers, and one would think that a great many people are diligently seeking after God. But Scripture makes clear in this passage and in others that all religious systems and all religious efforts are in reality attempts to escape the true God and to discover or manufacture false gods of one's own liking. You know how I know this is true? Is you can tell people the truth about who God is as revealed in the Bible. You can tell them about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And they will say, well, yeah, but you know, there's this fill in the blank. You know, there's what about, and there's this other thing and there's this other entity and all religious roads lead to the same revelation of God and that's just simply not true. Even through biblical revelation, even as God has made Himself clearly knowable, man is rebellious and says, I don't like that. I don't agree with that. I think there's a better way. And so man by nature is rebellious. In the beginning of this letter to the church at Rome, Paul said this in chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. I'm reminded of this quote that I came across many, many years ago that was quoted by Helen Keller. Helen Keller, you know the story. She was born blind. She was born deaf. She had no capacity for language. And through the tireless efforts of an individual whose name escapes me, she began to teach Helen words. She began to teach Helen language. She did so and began to teach her biblical Truth, And when she understood who Jesus was, through this 
birth of language in her life, she said, I've always known who God is, I just didn't know His name. Think about that. God has made it clearly knowable, but because man is rebellious, man rejects what God has made known about Himself. So while we can know something about God through creation, He hasn't made Himself unknowable to those that are truly seeking after the truth about who God is. Jeremiah 29.13 says, You will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. There was a day early in my journey with Christ, raised as a pagan, I knew nothing about the Bible. You could have quoted John 3.16 to me, and I couldn't have told you who said it, and where it came from, and what it meant. But I said early in my conversion that I was so hungry for significance and truth in my life that I could have become a Buddhist, or I could have become a Muslim, and later in my journey, I said, you know, that's not really true because I wanted to know the truth about who God is. I wanted to know the truth about significance in this life and I would have rejected that because I would have been convinced that there's a different way that would lead me to the one true God. Well, today there are countless numbers of religions that are created to escape the God of the Bible and to instead create a false God that caters to the desires of mankind. Number four, man is wayward. Verse 12 begins by saying, all have turned aside. This speaks of the direction of the unredeemed. They naturally turn away from God and live in disobedience to God's will. Even Israel, God's chosen people, A people called apart to holiness to live for Him, even the nation of Israel, with a full understanding, or at least a more full understanding than the pagan nations had about who God was, even the nation of Israel was wayward and wandered away from the truth to a way that seemed right in their own eyes. In fact, the book of Judges has been correctly summarized by the singular truth, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that was the nation of Israel. That is the way of the unredeemed. It is the potential for even the redeemed, apart from staying close to this God who has saved us. So this speaks of the direction of the unredeemed. They naturally turn away from God and live live in disobedience to God's will. And this is why Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Man naturally resists submission. Man naturally fights against authority. And the solution for this is for man to set his own course and to determine his own way. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I don't want anyone to tell me where to go. I don't want anyone to tell me what is right and wrong. I want to be my own boss. I want to be my own man. And I want to determine for myself my own God. Some will do this and reject all religion. Some will find a religion that caters to this individualism. And others will create their own religion that allows them to be their own boss. And when that happens, you have the birth of a cult 
where this person comes along and they are the new Messiah. They are the latest and the greatest and the best. And it's what I said, not what God says. It's what I've written, not what the Bible reveals. And when that becomes true of us, make no mistake about it, we have wandered away from the truth of biblical revelation to find a path that suits ourselves. The grace of Easter provides a cure for our waywardness Rather than turning away from God, we are invited to turn to God. And we read this passage in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, waywardness is a choice for the world. A wayward Christian is a choice for that individual. But that is not what we are destined to do. We are invited away from this waywardness and to turn to God with confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. Number five, man is spiritually worthless. Make no mistake about it. Man is created in the image of God. Man has an infinite value in the mind of God, but unredeemed man is spiritually worthless. Now, the latter part of verse 12 says, Together they have become useless. That term worthless was sometimes used to describe milk that had soured, and when milk gets soured, you can't drink it, you can't make cheese with it, you can't make butter out of it. Today, with our modern technology and the preservatives that we have, we can do some things with it. But in the ancient world, once milk had soured, that was it. It was useless. It was like salt that had lost its saltiness. It was good for nothing. So apart from Christ, man is spiritually dead and is separated from God. We would read this in Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so the grace of Easter is found in God's provision for our worthless spiritual condition. And in just a few verses later from Ephesians 2.1, Paul would write, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. So we are new spiritual creations recreated in the spiritual image of Christ and now made acceptable and can now satisfy God's righteous requirement. Number six, man is corrupt. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And this is a restatement of what was said in number one in our outline. And it is a summary of these other statements about the condition of unredeemed man. And so relative to other human beings, some people are obviously better behaved than others. We can look at someone's life and we say, that person exemplifies a lot of good 
moral behavior in their lives. And we could look at another individual and say, that person has nothing good in them. They are bad, and they are bad to the bone. And it's obvious that they're bad to the bone. Paul is not differentiating between levels of goodness. What he is doing is he is creating level ground at the depravity of man's spiritual condition and showing why we desperately need this redemption through the cross of Christ and how we can find new life through the cross of Christ and be totally and radically changed through the grace made available and necessitated through the Holy Week which consummates in Easter. No human being has within himself either the desire or the capacity for the good that is holy and perfect and God-glorifying according to the divine standard. Nobody, not even one. Now, second section in our outline, as we look at the character of the redeemed, we see the conversation of the redeemed. And so the biblical principle is that our inner character is exposed through our speech. Think about that. Our inner character is exposed through our speech. Jesus emphasized this biblical principle of Matthew chapter 12 in addressing the Pharisees. He says, You brutal vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure that which is evil. So the principle is expressed here in the beginning part of verse 13. A very gruesome picture image. Their throat is an open grave. Now when you think about the picture image of the throat being an open grave, that's pretty ugly, isn't it? That's, I mean, that's the worst kind of horror that you could visually see as you looked upon a dead person. So the principle is expressed here. Their throat is an open grave, and so the throat as an open grave speaks of death, and here it represents spiritual death, and by application it reflects the words of death that come forth from those who are unredeemed. What has already been said is the unredeemed, because of their character, have no words of spiritual life. Now, we don't look on the unredeemed and and visualize them like a person whose throat is an open grave. What we recognize is the words that come forth from the unredeemed are devoid of any kind of spiritual life. Their words or their conversations never, never lead anyone to God. They will only lead people away from God. We hear the wisdom and the philosophy of the unredeemed every single day of our life. The words of the unredeemed are words that come forth 
from one with an, one whose throat is like an open grave because there's, there's, there's no spiritual life in the things that they say. Have you ever wondered where this new woke ideology has come from? It comes from the spiritually dead who spew their words of death to anyone who listens. And think about the countless masses of people who are blindly and ignorantly just following along. You know, we are so far down the rabbit hole in our culture today that the mass of humanity is being convinced that there isn't male and female. There's any number of identifying factors that identify who you are. You're not male. You're not female. You're pretty much anything you want to be. And we have in our world today people saying, well, yeah, who am I to say that that isn't right? Who am I to say that that isn't true? Who am I to object to that kind of truth? And the reality is, this kind of ideology comes from the unredeemed. It has no spiritual value in it. And there are no words of life in it. It leads people further and further away from the reality and the truth of who God is. Can you imagine... Can you imagine being in an elementary school when you were in elementary school and having a drag queen storybook hour where you're going to sit and watch this person dress as a member of the opposite sex in this perverse extreme And you go, I want my little boy and my little girl to be exposed to that because I want them to be tolerant. I want them to be accepting of people who are different from them. Their throats are like an open grave. There are no words of life in it. And the masses of our culture today are just blindly following along like mummies whose eyes have been obscured from the truth and say, well, yeah, that sounds good to me. Oh, yeah, I think I'll go along with that. Well, yeah, I don't want to be an intolerant bigot. I, I don't want, you know. And this is what's going on in our world. The grace of Easter is found in the words of spiritual life provided by Jesus Himself. Here's what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. But you know what a rebellious man says? Jesus isn't the words of life. Jesus isn't the answer. Jesus isn't God. Jesus is archaic. Jesus is a part of the problem. If He is the way and the truth and the life, and entry into heaven is through the narrow gate of that exclusive club, I want nothing to do with it. Why? Because they reject authority, and they reject submission, and their throats are an open grave, and their unredeemed spiritual condition. Not only are there words of death, their words are words of deceit. 
Paul goes on to quote from the Psalms, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. And so deceit and lies are very closely related. Deceit is the lure that draws us in. And once caught, the lie is eventually revealed. It's like a man who puts a shiny lure on the end of his fishing line and he throws it out into the water and a fish sees that thing and says, oh, that looks like a meal for me. And the fish swims up and bites it and the fisherman yanks him out and says, no, 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 you are a meal for me. It's not what you thought. I deceived you through the lure and now the lie has been exposed. You look pretty tasty. This is exactly what happens in the context of the spiritual battle is there's all this garbage out there that is a shiny lure that looks attractive to the lives of the unredeemed, but they get hooked. And the lie hopefully one day gets revealed when the words of life come to them and they go, man, oh man, oh man. How could I ever have gotten that far away from the truth of who God is? This lure, this deceit, this lie characterizes the words of the unredeemed. Their words are filled with deceit and they're filled with lies. Probably not even intentionally. And that is true because they know nothing about who God is. They know nothing about biblical revelation. It is only what sounds right to them. It's only what feels good to them. They just don't know any better. This is why, as Christians, we need to be very, very careful about who we spend our time with and about what it is we're listening to, because if we aren't evaluating what we hear from the words of the unredeemed, we very likely will wander away from the truth of God's Word, and we must evaluate what we hear by the righteous, absolute standard of Scripture, and not by what feels good, and not by what sounds right, and what might be acceptable to those that I'm trying to appeal to. That's not our standard at all. Now, there are others in our world today that are intentionally deceitful, and they know they are lying because they intentionally prey upon the weaknesses and the vulnerabilities of others. Our world is filled with scammers and thieves who seek any and every opportunity to take advantage of others. But the grace that we find in Easter is very simply this. Jesus came to speak words of truth. John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in Him, if you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth. And what? The truth will make you free. And if you could visualize the strong fingers of a fisherman prying open the mouth of that fish and taking the lure out and say, I'm not here to eat you. I'm here to set you free. That's what Ken does. Ken's a good fisherman. He lures them in and then he lets them go. And it's the words of life that make us free. Thirdly, The words of hostility. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Have you ever tried to talk with a mouth that is just absolutely full of food? If you 
have a mouth that is absolutely full of food and you begin to talk, you can't help but to spit some of that food out. This is the reality of the words of hostility that represent and are reflected in the lives of the redeemed. It is full of cursing and bitterness. It is hostility. There's no spiritual peace in the words of the redeemed. Many look at the pain and suffering in the world, and what do they do? They blame God. Like this was His plan. Like God is sitting up there going, (laughs) I'm going to get you today. I'm going to trick you up today. I'm bringing destruction to your path today. And I'm just going to laugh, and I'm going to just, just enjoy watching you suffer as I inflict pain upon you. They think all of the good that is in the world is because of man, and all of the bad in the world is because of God. And I just want to say, how backwards is that? Even in this excessive era of tolerance for others that we live in, any amount of perceived intolerance is met with verbal and sometimes even physical assault. Because of man's sinful character, his words are filled with lies and deceit, and this has its origin in none other than in Satan himself. We go all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, questioning, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. God is a liar. God's holding you back. God's the reason for your pain. He's the reason for your problem. He's the reason that you're suffering in this world. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what began in the Garden of Eden has continued throughout all of time. And Jesus Himself said to His religious adversaries, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desire of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Those are the words of the unredeemed. They reject the truth of who God is. They reject the person of Christ. They reject biblical revelation. They are left to their own understanding, their own ideologies, their own philosophy, their own wisdom, and it does not ever lead us to God. It instead pushes us away from the truth of who God is. Thirdly, number three in our outline, is the conduct of the unredeemed. Now, the character of the redeemed defines who they are, who we were, out of that flows the conversation of the unredeemed because it's consistent with their character. And out of the character and the conversation flows the conduct. Just like the conversation, the conduct of the unredeemed stems from the character. Number one, Paul says, according from 
I believe this is Isaiah. Their feet are swift to shed blood. They are murderous. Now, obviously, most people in the world have not committed a murder, but the sinful seed of murder is rooted in the hearts of the unredeemed. Listen to this. According to researcher Arnold Barnett of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, yes, that's MIT, a child born today in any one of the 50 largest cities in the United States has the chance, listen to this, of 1 in 50 of being murdered. Any child born in any of the 50 largest cities in the U.S. today has a 1 in 50 chance of being murdered. Dr. Barnett estimated that a baby born in the 1980s is more likely to be murdered than an American soldier in World War II was in being killed in combat. That's in the United States. That's not in the world That's in the United States. Add to this the reality of the mass exterminations that we've seen in this past century from the Nazis and from the Marxists and even before that through other entities that I haven't written down. We could spend a lot of time looking at those and talking about those. Even in Jesus' well, after Jesus' day, the fall of Jerusalem by Rome in A.D. 70, Josephus recounts that 1.1 million Jewish people died at the fall of Rome. The seed of murder is sown deep into the heart of man because of his unredeemed condition. The grace of Easter is that we have been given a new heart. A new heart with the capacity and the desire to love and forgive and restore relationships rather than kill those that we oppose. We pick up on this truth as we go through these other enumerations here. Number two, the conduct of the unredeemed, they are destructive. Verse 16 and 17, destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace They have not known. So misery and peacelessness are the byproduct of the destructive. Rather than finding peaceful solutions to the problem or the conflict, the inclination of the unredeemed is revenge. Not necessarily murder, because after all, you're a good unredeemed human being. Not necessarily murder, but revenge. And so this Propensity is to exact a measure of justice or judgment that matches the level of misery experience. Oh yeah? That's what you're doing to me? (laughs) Just you wait and see. I got it coming for you. Just you wait and see. That's the seed of unredeemed conduct that is sometimes exacted in murder but often in revenge. While many have never given in to physical retaliation, there is still the internal anger and desire for retribution that is indicative of an unredeemed spiritual condition that manifests itself in what is very clearly unrighteous behavior. Jesus 
Jesus said this, for those of us who might be self-righteous, Matthew 5, 21 and 22, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to a brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go in to the fiery hell. You see what Jesus is doing is he's not talking about the specific physical act. He's talking about the internal character that says, I'm going to get you. You're going to get what's coming to you. I don't have the capacity or the desire to love or forgive. I'm going to exact revenge upon you. And that is the kind of conduct that is consistent with the unredeemed. Well, the grace of Easter is being set free from this destructive peaceless life and a one that is filled with joy and hope. The Bible commands us and the Bible empowers us to love one another, to be devoted to one another, to honor one another, to live in harmony with one another, to build up one another, to accept one another, to care for one another, to serve one another, to bear with one another, to forgive with one another. To be patient with one another. To be, pi- to be kind and compassionate towards one another. And on and on and on it goes with how the redeemed are to live not only amongst the community of faith, but with those outside of the community of faith to be hands and feet of the gospel message. Thirdly and finally, as we look at the conduct of the unredeemed, they are godless. This is, this is a summarization of these two that we've identified. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Sadly, they will one day understand the error of their ways. They will recognize their fault. They might even callously say, yeah, I rejected you, God. Bring it on. Bring me your best shot. <laughs> I can't imagine such a position. But the grace of Easter can be summarized in one single verse. And I conclude with this. 1 Corinthians 6.11 Such were some of you. In fact, Paul's talking about something else specifically, but generally we could say, and such were all of us. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. The sinful character, the sinful conversation, the sinful conduct of the unredeemed, of you and I, is what necessitates the need for Easter. God in His holiness could have said not going to happen. I am cutting the option and you will be left to your own devices. And you will understand and experience what a real separation from me looks like. Not just during your brief time in the world, but for a period called eternity, a time with no end. 
That's what's out there. That's what has necessitated the need for Easter. And our being here this morning and being able to sing of the greatness of God, of being able to talk about a grace that is greater than our sin, has everything to do with Him and nothing to do with us. Because we could never accomplish that on our own. That could never be given to us apart from the grace of Easter.